Welcome everybody. Today we have Dr. Alan Badley, Professor Emeritus, one of the world's leading authorities on human, human memory. He's created the famous working memory model in the 1970s. This is a model that I have cited myself probably 50 times. My students have all read about it. Um, he has a BA from the University College London. He has an MA from Princeton University and a PhD from Cambridge. And he's been working as a researcher, publishing well over 300 publications, according to Google Scholar. And that could be a little off, but over 300 publications from what I've found. So welcome. Okay, hello. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's a lot. And we're going to get to some of your motivation, of how you publish so often and stuff like that. I, I actually read, I was reading your book, and I read your book, Working Memory, and I saw you did this study on using laughing gas, like just some really amazing stuff that you've done throughout your career. So I, one of the first questions I have for you is what is the high and lowest point of your career? Ah. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I like to jump right into it. Sure. It depends how you, uh, well, let me tell you a low and, and a high that happened on the same day, which was that um, I was, I thought I was proposed uh, as a fellow of the Royal Society, which is the, um, your Academy of Sciences. Um, and a guy who, proposed me. I said that there weren't enough psychologists, but I didn't feel that I was going to be the one. But he said he proposed me anyway. You have to go through a lot of work. Uh, and nothing happened, nothing happened. I was revisiting um, University of California, San Diego. And I was about to give a talk that I knew Francis Crick was going to be the, in the audience. And just beforehand, uh, I was chatting to the head of department who I knew because I'd had a sabbatical there. And he was complaining about someone who had been elected, who he felt shouldn't be. And it was clear that I hadn't been. And I had to go and give this talk to the guy who had discovered basically the double helix. And uh, it was very hard to concentrate. That was one of the lowest. <laughs> yeah. When I got to the end, it was one of the highest that actually seemed to work. And I, I got invited to his house and so forth and so on. So that was a sort of a, a low and a high within an hour. <laughs> Um, That's great. Uh, other things, uh, I don't know, lots and lots. Yeah. But um, not too many lows, actually. I'm a fairly optimistic character. And if something doesn't work out, I tend to think, okay, well, let's try something else. It's a great way to live life. I've been trying to do that more yeah. and more as I, as I grow. Yeah. And when I did get elected, I, I was director of the APU, and I was surprised by my staff because yeah. they had a surprise party for me. So uh, that's in terms of, of achievements. But I think what's really gives me my eye is actually doing research and getting something that works and getting really excited about it. And I think the achievements are great and it's important to have these demarcations, but they're not what really 
drives me at least. They're, yeah. they're much more the, the fun I get. And that's why I'm still doing research at 88. And I, I signed up for a book yesterday. <laughs> so you're still going. <laughs> you, still going. You're yeah. still going. All right. So now when you went to when you went to college, you said that most of the people around your age, people only went to school till around the age of 14. But your father was very much interested in, you know, university and getting you educated. What did people do? Like what what like was that unusual that you went to college and like people only went to school to 14. So what did people do? Like you just didn't uh, need a degree about, back then? About 5% of the UK population went to university. Uh, the majority would leave at, I, th- I can't remember, it's 14, 15, something like that. Uh, a, a smaller number would go to high school uh, called grammar schools. Um, and when I reach that point uh it was the first year that you didn't have to pay to go to yeah. grammar school and um, so i was very lucky and selection was by a test that's basically an iq test mm-hmm. and although i went to a not very good school I, I did pretty well on the iq iq test and so although i was put in a top stream and didn't do very well for a while they kept me in there and gradually I, I stayed the same and everybody else seemed to get it a little bit worse. <laughs> um, so you originally, so, you know, you went through school and you make it to college. You originally told people you wanted to be a teacher because you kind of thought that's what they maybe wanted to hear. But in your mind, you really wanted to be an explorer. Um, and in some ways, you've actually been able to do both of those things. You've been uh, you've been a professor. You've been able to explore research, explore questions that you've had. Um, did you start to actually enjoy the teaching aspect? What did you, what was your, what, what, what did you enjoy about being a professor? Um, well, I, I said I was going to be a teacher because that was a safe thing to say. Yeah. It was uh, a, a sort of fairly decent um, aim for somebody in high school. Um, I didn't really want to be a teacher. Uh, I didn't really expect to be an explorer. <laughs> I wanted to do something that would allow me to, well, to move out in the world, to travel and do different <clears throat> things. And I'd read these books about jobs, uh, most of them pretty unrealistic. And we would be asked what our career moves were and so forth and so on. But anyway, I wanted to go to university and my father wanted to. And he was someone who, who was thoughtful and read books and would certainly have gone to university um, when I was young in terms of his intellect, mm-hmm. um, but didn't and was a compositor, which is uh, a job that doesn't exist anymore and it involves putting together type in order to print books and so forth. So did you enjoy uh, the teaching, to... that teaching aspect? Did you enjoy teaching as a faculty member? Um, I've always really thought of myself as as somebody, as a researcher. Yeah. Uh, And for the first nine years of my academic life, I did full-time research. Mm -hmm. Um, I then moved to teaching. I did quite enjoy teaching. And I think I'm really reasonably good at presenting things um, clearly and in in an organized way and trying to say what's exciting about them. 
I'm not a natural teacher in the sense that um, I'm a bit impatient. And rather than uh, my colleague Graham Hitch is a, is a good teacher and he coaxes the answer out of people. Um, I tend to be a bit impatient and want to t tell them what it is. So I'm not a natural teacher in that respect, but yeah. I'm, I'm a reasonable teacher in writing textbooks, which is why I've done it for all these years. Sure. So you went to and, the- and I like interaction with students. I like supervising projects where we can work together as a sort of supervisor and apprentice. Mm -hmm. That I enjoy. So you went to the University College London and you said that this was an exciting time in psychology and you went into psych. Um, <clears throat> I know you had bit kind of thought about what you wanted to do at that time, but once you chose psychology, as you were going through and even like working towards your master's at Princeton, were you dou ever doubting your choice in psych? And Absolutely did, not. No. Within my first year, I was sure within a term that's what I wanted to do. I did my first memory experiment in my first year. Yeah. We stole psychology and uh, where the gaps closed when you were remembering them. And I've been doing experiments ever since. So and did you have an end goal at that time? Like, did you know like what kind of job you were going to have? Or were you like, I, I want to... I, I thought I'd like to be an academic. And gotcha. Be a lecturer. Mm -hmm. uh, and there weren't jobs around at that time. Um, maybe in Canada and Australia and so forth. But in England at that time, there were very few jobs. So I aim to um, stay out of having to find a job for as long as possible. And uh, I went to Princeton for a year. I came back and expected to have to go and be conscripted in the army for two years. Yeah. Which, um, I didn't because I was grade C, because I'd had asthma as a child. Uh, and then had to find a temporary job as a hospital porter, as, as a teacher in a mining village with absolutely no training, which I found exhausting uh, and convinced me I didn't want to be the primary school teacher. Uh, then I got a research job in a, an interesting uh, neurological institute. And then the money ran out. And I was lucky to be offered a job at the MRC Medical Research Council, yeah. Applied Psychology Unit in Cambridge, just at a time when Donald Broadbent had written probably the first experimentally based, based cognitive psychology book called Perception and Communication, which was really combining um, information processing with experimental psychology, with its application with personality, and it was a seminal book. Um, and I arrived the year that that was published and in a, a unit that was a, at the sort of leading edge of cognitive psychology. Yeah. Now you went- and to be so, actually. Uh, now you went to the United States for Princeton for your masters. Was that like a, did you want to go over to the United States? Was that like a fun, it, like, thing, oh, yeah. like you were like, yes, oh, I, I wanted to go to the United States. Yeah. And, and I applied for uh, an English speaking union fellowship. And, uh, and I got two one to Tulane, which sounded fun, mm -hmm. and one to Princeton. And my head of department said, Well, Princeton's not great at the moment, but I, I choose Princeton. And uh, it wasn't great at that time, but it's, uh, it's become 
well, shall we say it's recovered its previous <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's a good place now. Now, do you think that contributed, like getting out, exploring, like going and meeting other people across seas and stuff? Do you think that contributed to you, you know, your oh, yeah. knowledge and, and just who you know, like your networking throughout your career? Like you, you think that was beneficial? It, it, was, it was partly that. It was partly that um, I built confidence from that. Uh, I, I found I was doing pretty well in, in London. I was pretty good in Princeton. I had a summer in Los Angeles where I had a part-time job working on an office of naval research mm -hmm. project where I seemed to do okay. Uh, then I moved to um, this neurology unit, which had a, a brilliant neurophysiologist there called Gray Walter, who uh, made several major discoveries and I found I, I could hold my own chatting to him. Uh, and then I moved to the unit and seemed to do okay there. So I felt by that time I had a, a lot of experience and I found I, I could float in a lot of different environments. And I'd done psychology in London, which had rather different uh, papers that were referred to than mm -hmm. those in Princeton. Um, I did my master's in one year because I was, um, they couldn't think what to do with me. They, they thought I was coming for a PhD. Yeah. I just wanted to go for a year. <laughs> so they said, well, you can do the master's. Yeah. And I did on the basis of my London degree, which was, you know, a three year extended degree. Yeah. Whereas the master's was based on, uh, you, you were assumed not necessarily to have uh, any psychology beforehand. Uh, and so I, I met lots of people. I moved from a working class environment to London, where I was a bit working class and my accent was regarded as strange, uh, but not strange, a bit working class. And I moved to Princeton and I had an English accent and that was regarded as posh, which was kind of interesting. And um, so I, I just had a, a wonderful time. As, as described in my book, yeah. Working Memories. <laughs> yeah, I read about some of your adventures in there. It was, it was great. Definitely yeah. good stuff. So anyone watching this, definitely check out that book, Working Memories. Lots and lots of details about that trip and stuff in that book that you'll get to read. Um, so moving into your, you know, kind of your one of your landmark studies, 74, uh, Badley and Graham Hitch, your, your and Graham Hitch's, you know, famous working memory model. So first of all, you so this was a grant. Did you guys have a hypothesis before you started this research? Like, did you have any idea you were going to come up with what you did come up with? Uh, yes. I mean, I worked for several years before that on, first of all, on, on long-term memory, then on mm -hmm. short-term memory, discovering that uh, short-term memory seemed very sensitive to the sound of words, mm -hmm. which actually my boss had already demonstrated but that it wasn't very sensitive if you presented unrelated words to their meaning. But on the other hand, if you presented, say, 10 words for several trials, meaning became all important. Mm -hmm. So I bought my way into a hot controversy between long and short term memory. And um, between publishing that in 1966 uh, and moving to 
the University of Sussex in a teaching post. Um, I'd extended it and elaborated it and realized that it was an oversimplification. Um, Atkinson and Schifrin had just mm -hmm. come out and um, it did a neat job of summarizing what had happened in the previous 10 years. Yeah. Um, but it was inconsistent with um, work from neuropsychology. It assumed that a single short-term store uh, acted also as a working memory and was essential for feeding into long-term memory. Mm -hmm. And a rare kind of patient discovered at that time had very impaired short-term verbal memory. If you gave them a telephone number beyond two items, they couldn't remember. Yeah. But their long-term memory was fine. And their working memory, their capacity to interact in intellectually was also fine. And so that seemed inconsistent. And so what we proposed was to look at the link between short-term and long-term memory. And we had a, a series of experiments that we proposed. Um, I made the application because I was pushed by my head of department because I'd never put in grants before. <clears throat> yeah. Um, because I was in a unit where we weren't allowed to do that. Uh, we, we had subjects provided. Uh, we weren't supposed to compete with the universities. Yeah. That's different now, but that was the case. And, and so I just bumbled along and my head of department said, it's time you got a grant. <laughs> uh, all right, well, why don't you apply for a postdoc and a research assistant? And, uh, and I should nominate somebody for the postdoc. And I um, knew Graham because he'd done a, a conversion course from um, a physics degree in Cambridge to an experimental psychology master's. Uh, and he'd gone back to the applied psychology unit and done a PhD with, with Donald Broadbent. And so I put him as my postdoc. They thought it was too expensive. Fortunately, they cut the research assistant, not the postdoc. Uh, and so we started to work together and we're still working together. In fact, I'm due to give him a ring in a, a little over an hour's time. <laughs> That's great that you guys are still working together. So you guys have published and worked, collaborated together for basically the span of both of your careers. That's amazing. That's great to uh, keep in touch with yeah. someone like that. Yeah, we published a lot together initially. Mm -hmm. and then uh, Graham um, worked his own uh, track through um, development and through um, computational modeling. Uh, and we I came back about, um, well, after I, I'd officially retired uh, and um, I had a deal in uh, Bristol whereby mm -hmm. I would get a half-time appointment until I was 70. Uh, and Graham at that time had just moved to York. So I did a similar deal with York uh, that um, they provide me initially with a half-time salary which would supplement my pension and um, have been there now for almost 20 years. Not, well, I moved from half time to rather less and I'm emeritus now. Yeah. But still, still keeping busy and um, doing lots of things. Now, when you guys were doing your research and you're coming up with terms like 
central executive. I mean, you basically just have to, you're coming up with the term, like you're inventing it right there. I mean, some of the terms you had to do that. Do you think people would buy into it? Like, how, how do you how do you come up with your terms? And then are you surprised when someone's like actually like using it like years later? No, I tend to think very hard about the terms that I use. And if they don't seem quite right, then I change them. So the phonological loop started off as the articulatory loop. And that seemed wrong because it focused on articulation mm -hmm. rather than storage. And so I moved to phonemic and I was then told, no, that meant, had a specific meaning um, that wasn't quite what I wanted. So I chose phonological. And eventually somebody said, well, that's got a specific meaning. So I said, oh, forget it. Let's stick with phonological. <laughs> and similarly with the visuospatial, it started off as the visuospatial scratch pad, which is not a term that's used much in the UK. And I discovered it was, it could have writing on it as well. And so change it to sketch pad. Similarly with the episodic buffer, I thought a lot about it and wanted a term that would capture it. So I think I think labels um, are, are important. Definitely. Definitely. So you publish this study and it's out. Are people like, wow, this is a great, great research you've done. This is this is so significant in the field or do you not hear anything? Does it take a while for that to happen? Like, when do you actually no. feel like, wow, this is a significant study that I just did? Um, it certainly didn't take off. Yeah. Uh, Short-term memory was going through a sort of slump mm -hmm. because uh, of levels of processing, semantic memory, and uh, long-term memory, um, math model that Rick Schifrin was doing. Mm -hmm. um, but short-term memory was always re respectable. Uh, probably more in the UK than in North America, where long-term memory was more influential and still is, I think, um, which turned out to be an advantage because we could develop it slowly and come up with results that if 20 people had jumped on the bandwagon would have disappeared mm -hmm. because we used dual tasking quite a lot where you have uh, a task you're interested in, and then you try to block one component of the working memory model. And it's tricky to do that because you have to understand what the three components are and pilot quite a lot. And if it had just become popular, people would have come to the conclusion that, well, it, it's all the same, it doesn't work. And um, so we were lucky. Uh, and to some extent, I, I was pleasantly surprised when um, people started taking it up. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 it was a, a bottom up, almost from memory span upwards. And we left the central executive to at least 10 years afterwards, because we knew it was very complicated. Um, phonological loop was the simplest. The sketch pad was next. And it was only when I started to write a book on the, the first 10 years called Working Memory that I, I got almost to the end and thought, I've not said anything about the 
central executive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew it was an attentional system, but the, the attentional systems were all perceptual, basically how you um, process information from outside. And I needed uh, basically a control system that would control action. Fortunately, um, Chalice, Norman and Chalice, uh, fortunately, Norman and Chalice had got together on such a model. And uh, Chalice was interested in um, attentional control in the frontal lobes. Uh, Don Norman was interested in slips of action uh, and how they're controlled mm-hmm. and how they act, they act. And together from these very different aspects, they came together with a, a model um, which they couldn't get published. Um, it was, I think, too speculative. Yeah. And uh, too way out. Um, so eventually, I, they, um, at that time, um, Tim Chalice uh, had come to the to join the uh, applied psychology unit, uh, which I was running, uh, and he and Don worked together on it, uh, and so I I was very familiar with it, and could see a way of linking it into what I needed through the central executive. Uh, and that seemed to work very well. Yeah. So now you, you finished your PhD in 62. You, it takes you 12 years. You get to the point 12 years later to write this study. I feel like today a lot of, a lot of doctoral students, I remember like when I was getting my PhD, everyone wanted their, thought their dissertation was going to be like their biggest thing and they want to do this like right away, like happen, has to happen now or it's not going to happen. How do, you, how do you stay motivated through that time and then even afterwards to just continuously do this, continuously put out publication after publication and do this good, solid, important research? I just enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I find it exciting and uh, um, I, ju- I just like to answer questions and uh, to develop things and uh, I like working with people. That's awesome. I mean, I love that. That's that's what like that's what it's all about. Like that's why we're that's why I got into this. That's why we're all doing this is to ask questions and work with people and explore the you know find out new things. Yeah. Uh, so, do you have a process for writing? Like, do you you start out with paper? Do you have note cards? Do you you know use a typewriter or a computer? Or, you know, a computer now kind of thing. Like, what's your process, and how long does it take you to write things? Well, I, um, I suppose I started off writing longhand, um, and then w- one time, um, I had to write a paper for a conference, and I'd run out of time. And I thought, well, I'll try and dictate it. And I found it worked. Yeah. So I'd been thinking about it a lot. It was an error I knew very well. Uh, And it worked. Uh, And I've been doing it ever since. Now, I find I have to think it through a lot and to understand it. Yeah. 
if I try to dictate too soon, it doesn't work. Um, but I've actually just stopped doing that um, because I, well, I don't have a secretary. Yeah. Uh, and um, I now collaborate much more. Yeah. Um, so I do first drafts, but I still think think through a lot before I, I try and dictate. Yeah. I find if I uh, try and dictate too soon, it doesn't work and I have to take far too long. Yeah. And how long does it take you to write an article? Like, is it like a week? Does it take you several months or does it just vary by the... By the... It, it varies hugely. If it's some, something I'm very familiar with, um, I can write very quickly. Yeah. I could write in, in, in a week. Yeah. Um, other things that take me, um, well, a month or more, a year, yeah. it varies. Depends yeah. how much time I, I need to put into understanding it. Sure. And, and once I've got on top of it, uh, I probably need to have smaller chunks these days. Yeah. To get not on top of the whole thing, but on top of a part of it. Yeah. Memory's not as good as it was. And at what point in your research do you decide, do you think like, hey, I'm not going to write a paper now, I'm going to work on a book. Like, why do you, why do you think you make that decision to write a book versus a paper sometimes? Uh, well, my first book was... Um, because um, I was going on sabbatical to University of California, San Diego, uh, and needed to buy a second-hand car. And uh, the psychology of memory was what I wrote there mm -hmm. uh, that really worked very, very well. Um, I, in the preface, um, I, I started with... Uh, this book originated in a pub called The Friend at Hand mm -hmm. in London when I was offered the chance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I also mentioned that I, I, I did so because I needed enough money to buy a second-hand car. That's always a good reason. <laughs> so, so that leads yeah. into a question. Does there, is there money when, so you're, you know, you're, very well known as a extremely famous researcher. Is there any money or financial benefit to that? And are that does it lead to opportunities like speaking engagements and stuff like that? Oh yeah, um, it, it it does. Uh, um, I mean, I, I if I hadn't been so well known, I'm sure I wouldn't have had so many invitations. Sure. Um, and um, in terms of writing, uh, there's a sense in which my writing career and my research career are parallel but separate. Um, and in a sense, my writing is almost like my substitute for teaching. Yeah. Um, and I enjoy doing it. And you could say I've been rewriting uh, my original book uh, ever since. <laughs> um, as the field has moved on mm -hmm. and latterly I, I write with two other co-authors, um, Michael Isink and Michael Anderson. Um, 
and uh, it's, it's changed and it's moved on. But the core is somewhat similar. Um, but obviously, lots and lots has happened since. Yeah. And did so, you? Um, I, I, I think I get invitations partly because of that and partly because of my research. Yeah. Um, and opportunities to talk in different places. And I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, I don't travel much these days. Yeah. Particularly these days. Sure. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a bit. But uh, yeah, I, I'm really, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you spend a lot of time reading other others' research and like reading the journals and all that stuff? I mean, did you throughout your career, do you spend a significant amount of time like reading everything that's coming out? Um, I used to be able to do that yeah. in the early days, but there are several hundred papers on working memory a year that come Sure, out. sure. And I work on other areas as well including long-term memory. So I sample and I scan. Sure. Uh, and when I'm writing something, I, I, I look for something related to that. Um, so here's a question for you about working memory. And this is a question that I've been thinking about. Um, I saw, read this quote from you, maybe, I read it maybe five years ago. It's a quote from your one of your works in 2012. Um, and you say, you're talking about expanding the working memory model and you say, can other modalities such as smell and taste be added without impacting visual or verbal capacity? Are there separate subsystems for smell and taste? And this got me thinking, are there other subsystems for these and how do they fit in and why haven't we, why haven't really, there's not much research on them whatsoever and why haven't we went down that route? Um, well, I have had the occasional attempt to look at memory for smell, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really complicated. Yeah. And uh, I did, did a, a study with a, a visiting Australian who was interested in that a year or two back. And um, it became clear that uh, it really is complex yeah and um too complicated to uh, get into as, as a sort of part-time occupation yeah uh, i did try that once and uh, came to grief because i got the smell labels mixed up <laughs> and so two that were supposed to be dramatically different were labeled the same <laughs> yeah i gave up at that point but um yeah, I, I, I think they are, in the current model, they're, they're sort of dotted subsystems. Yeah. Um, where I, th I, th I think it would be interesting to look at. and um, But it, it's not an easy area to dabble in. Sure. You really need, and, and they're probably quite complex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm sure they will be incorporated. Yeah. Um, but not yet yeah so you know going all along with that the the smell and taste and even like haptic when you know kinesthetic movements how do you think what role do you think technology is going to play in being able to actually analyze them like we have you know with virtual reality and video games i don't know if you keep up with any of the tech stuff but how, do you think that's going to be able to play a part in analyzing some of that portion of working memory 
Um, I'm sure it, it will, um, because it's a very general technology. Yeah. Uh, and um, certainly it, it will be applied. Um, but I'm not expert in that area by any means. So, yeah. uh, so what, so as you look back, I have two questions for you about this. Um, you look back, you, you left, you, you switched careers, jobs several times throughout your career. Like you would work at a university for almost 20 years and then switch to another one. Um, do you think that added value to career, your career? Like, did you ever want to just stay in one place? Like I talked to some faculty and they like got their first job and they stayed there forever. And you didn't do that. Yes, no, I have a very good friend uh, that I met in Princeton who, who did exactly that. He yeah. got a, a, a job in a, a liberal arts college which suited him very well. And they provided him with re research facilities and spent his whole career there. Mm -hmm. um, I, I suppose, tend to move a bit. Um, I moved from full-time research uh, after nine years um, because I thought I'd like to explore academia. Yeah. And if I left it later, it would be more difficult to mm -hmm. move. Um, I moved from there to uh, a professorship in a new university at Stirling. And two years into that, Donald Broadbent, who was director of the unit I um, grew up in, so to speak, retired. And I applied. And I was there for 20 years and I moved partly because I was approaching retirement and I knew as I got closer to retirement the options would close down and so I obtained a, a big research grant and moved to a university post mm -hmm. uh, and spent nine years there. And when that was running out, I moved to York, again on a, a, a post that was a research post, mm -hmm. and did some teaching. And I've stayed there ever since, for uh, coming up towards 20 years. Yeah. So was there a point in your career where you were like, you know what, I've made it, like I, I did it, like I'm successful. Like did that, did that ever come to you? And when, when did that happen? Oh, all the time. Um, yes, when I started out, I, I no idea, you know, how far I would go. I, I thought I've been successful. Um, I've got a, a research job. Yeah. And got a PhD. Uh, and I seemed to do okay there. And I thought, well, it'd be, I should try academia. Uh, I applied for a couple of jobs. I got one of them and was turned down from, from the other. Yeah. Uh, and and I seem to be doing okay there. Um, I moved up to, uh, because I, I, I gave a talk at the University of Stirling in, in Scotland. And it was a new university. It was just starting out. They were planning to have five chairs, which was unheard of in British universities at that time. Yeah. And wanted me to look after the research. Um, so I, I said, okay, and I'll, I'll move up. And um, as I did, 
Margaret Thatcher took over and the whole academic system closed down in terms of expansion. And my previous boss, Donald Broadbent, retired from the Applied Psychology Unit. So I applied for his job uh, and got in and then stayed for um, 20 years. Yeah. And moved when um, I was going to have to retire. And so you could say I've been escaping retiring and retirement <laughs> for 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally caught up with me. Yeah. I've got lots of friends in a similar doing this very similar. I mean, my father's doing that very similar thing as well. He's a faculty member, does not, you know, retired, yeah. semi retired, does not want to. Yeah. So I totally understand that. Um, now hopefully that's where I am in my career at some point as well. Um, so what is, you know, you've, you've really hit on a, you know, working memory a significant amount in your research, but what, is there like a publication of yours that you're like, you know, that study and that publication is my, I really, that was my favorite one. Like I look back at my career and I think that's was the most enjoyable experience doing that one. Um, I tend not to look back that much. Yeah. I suppose. Um, and I, I still publish about five a year. Yeah. A lot of them with, with collaborators. Uh, whereas initially they'd, they'd be mainly single author papers. Yeah. Um, that, that, you know, the, the world's changed. Yeah. Um, so yes, I've, I've changed and, uh, uh, I just, I just like playing the game. I accept that I, not likely to make any great discoveries. So, you know, you talked in the beginning of the presentation about, you know, you just, you're still publishing, like what's next? Is there anything in working memory that you're, you think like this is next in this area? Like what is, what is your, what's next for you? Well, I signed up for a popular book yesterday on, um, basically on working memory. Mm -hmm for teachers. And it's something that I thought it would be good to write for ages, but um, I needed to write it with someone who was a practicing teacher, yeah, but who also um, was familiar with media and with publishing. And last week I, I was asked to do uh, an interview with somebody uh, and she turned out to be someone who would just fit the bill. Yeah. And she also had a publisher, whereas the publishers I'd looked at um, really weren't suitable. And so I've just signed up for a book on working memory. That's awesome. Uh, for teachers. It's, uh, it's great to see that you, you know, I mean, I looked at your citations and you've got publications coming. Like it's, it's just, it's, it's awesome and it's amazing. I just can't believe you've had an amazing career, one that anyone, you know, is envious of. I mean, you've, you have more than 10 times the publications that I do. And I just can't even imagine that. It's just so like, yeah. just so such a body of work, which is just awesome. I want to thank you for coming today. Um, thank you for taking the time to, you know, talk with me and, you know, it's great. Just get this information out there and students will be able to watch this and see it. And, you know, it's just okay. amazing. Thank you. It's such a good talk. Like I'm honored to be able to speak with you. Well, I really enjoyed it.